Good day and welcome to Eyewitness Good News, the first name in good news coverage. Today is a great day as we continue our in-depth coverage on the life of the recently deceased Jesus of Nazareth, who some claims the promised Messiah, even the Son of God. You've heard the buzz, you've heard all the rumors, and it's time to get the facts. Luke, the physician, has a reputation for carefully researched reporting, and this promises to be no exception. He has read the written accounts, traveled to the original locations, and interviewed eyewitnesses. And now that his careful investigation is over, he is ready to share his orderly account with all our viewers. For the details of his research, please find a copy of his excellent book. But for now, we will send you over to the field for today's top story. Thanks again to Luke for his excellent research, and thank you for tuning in. As always, this is Josh Smith for Eyewitness Good News. Well, welcome to Eyewitness Good News. Uh, if you don't know why Josh Smith is uh, introing this series, then go back and watch last week. Uh, we kicked off the series last week, and last week we just looked at the curious introduction to the Gospel of Luke, where Luke himself talks about the fact that his gospel is written based off his research, his interviews with eyewitnesses, his study of original documents, and he reminds us that the, the New Testament witness to Jesus did not emerge in sort of a religious trance. Rather, it was the carefully researched evidence of the eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, to his death and resurrection. And what we're looking, what we're doing in this series is looking through the Gospel of Luke and seeing what we can learn from these earliest eyewitness accounts. Uh, I love this series. I always love the month of February. Um, love month, you already heard, it's going on. Hundreds of you have signed up for projects. I don't have the last count, but close to 300 of you have signed up to be part of a project to bless our city. I love that. I do wanna tell you about one project that we need to close the gap on. One of our projects is we take meals to all of the fire stations of Johnson City throughout the month, and we've got almost all of them covered. I think we need to cover four more fire stations. So if you want to take a meal to a fire station, they got all the details. In fact, you can, all the projects are still open, so if you haven't signed up for one, go check it out. But if you want to help with that one in particular, we need to close the gap on that pretty soon. Uh, so we'd love to just kind of finish that one today. So you can look on that and get information about that. Also, you heard about men's breakfast, that's Saturday. Man, we had a feast last time, and uh, we're just gonna double it this week so that more people can enjoy it. So be there, that's gonna be a great time. Um, and this golf trip, I love this. Kenny Smith, uh, he just said, hey, we need a way we can get to know each other better in the church, and I'm willing to step up and lead this. And then I love this thing, he said, and there are people out there who love golf, but don't love Jesus yet. So what we should do is invite them to come with us. And then maybe by the end of the weekend, they'll love golf and Jesus, which apparently in his mind, that's kind of the goal is to love golf and Jesus. So uh, if you know people you want to invite, by all means, bring them. This isn't like limited to our church or whatever. Bring them with you. Uh, and Kenny's got a great, if you've got questions, uh, track down Kenny, reach out to us. We'll get you in touch. Uh, he's got a great plan for that. It's going to be a good time. All right, let's jump in uh, to our investigation of the Gospel of Luke, which is his investigation in to the life of Jesus. Now, like it says in the intro, we're just hitting the highlights here together. Uh, so if you want to read the whole story, you're going to have to get the book. 
Uh, but good news, it's conveniently packaged for you inside the Bible. Uh, the book of Luke is the third book of the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, look underneath the chairs in front of you. About every third chair, there is a Bible. Just grab one. And if you need one, just take it home. We'll restock before next week. We want you to own a Bible. Uh, you got a Bible on your phone. Today, we're going to be in Luke chapter four. So if you want to go be finding that, you can already start finding Luke four on your phone or on your tablet or on a, in a paper Bible or whatever you want. Um, but if you want the whole story, you're going to have to read the book because we're just hitting the highlights. And our story for today from Luke chapter 4 is the first story that Luke tells from the ministry of Jesus. He's already told about the birth narrative of Jesus, and this is the first story he tells about Jesus' ministry. Now, interestingly, this is not the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And you might be confused by that. You know, if Luke is so organized, why doesn't he start at the beginning? Well, <clears throat> we talked last week about Luke saying, uh, oh, look at this, verse three. He says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. And when we see that word orderly, most of us today in the modern world, when we put things in order, we would put them in chronological order. If you were to tell a story, you know, think, you know, sometimes if a little kid tells a story, you can get overwhelmed because they just put the details in a totally random order. You tell me what happened first and then second and then put it in chronological order. That's the way we organize things. But interestingly... Uh, Luke, along with most of the gospel writers, while they occasionally put things in chronological order, their main goal was not to always put things in chronological order. Their main goal was to put things in an order of importance so that we could understand the life of Jesus. We were discussing this in our preaching planning team on uh, Thursday, and uh, Donald Mashaimunda said that he thinks that the most helpful way for us to think about this word orderly is to think about it as organized. It is an organized account, organized on purpose to help us understand Jesus. He starts with the birth narrative. That's chapters one through three, which is to help us know who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the promised savior of the world. Jesus is the one who will bring good news of great joy for all people. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He starts with the birth narrative so we'll know who Jesus is. And then when he turns to the ministry of Jesus in chapter four, the first story he chooses to tell us about Jesus' ministry is designed to answer two questions. What is Jesus doing and who is it for? The reason he picks this text we're going to look at together today is so that we'll understand the purpose and intention of the ministry of Jesus. What is Jesus trying to accomplish and who is included in this work. So maybe by now you've gotten your Bibles open to Luke chapter four. If not, pull it up on your phone. We're going to be starting in verse 14. You'll see it's not the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it is the first story Luke tells to focus our attention on what Jesus is doing and who it's for. Luke, verse, Luke chapter four, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he unrolled it to exactly the text he wanted to read until he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today's the day. We're doing it, he said. All spoke well of him. They were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown of Nazareth what we heard you did in Capernaum. See, that's how we know this isn't the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's already been doing stuff for a while. This is just the first story Luke tells us. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. There was severe famine in the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. We've got to start with that ending. What a crazy day, right? You go back home to preach in your home synagogue, and at first everything's so awesome. They're all so excited about the hometown boy made good. But by the end of the day, they're trying to kill you? That's crazy, right? What made him so mad they tried to kill him? Well, it was when he answered that question about who was his ministry for. And he went out of his way to make it clear that his ministry was for everybody, even the people they despised. And that they were not going to be special. They were going to be part of the everybody that Jesus was here to accomplish God's purposes for when they found out that Jesus was there to love everybody, it made them so mad, they, they tried to kill him. You know, we do that sometimes too, don't we? That thing where we like some people more than other people. You know, I don't mean just like a little bit, like, you, you know, they're funnier, but, you know, you decide there are some people you just hate some people you despise, some people you sort of hope are on the outs with God, and other people you hope are on the, you know, we, we do that. I mean, I, I don't think it's just me, you know, that sometimes writes people off, you know. It's about one of the grossest things you can do, isn't it, to decide that some group of people or some person, to wish them harm, you know. But it does happen to us where we start to wish other people harm. It had happened to them. 
And when they heard from Jesus that his good, his good news was for everybody, it made them so mad they tried to kill him. It made them so mad they tried to kill him. And, and that's the, the second thing Luke wants us to learn about Jesus, right from the get-go. He starts with this story so that you'll know from the very beginning, everything Jesus is trying to do is for everybody, even the people you wouldn't have expected, even the people you would have thought God had given up on, even the people you would have thought were cut off and forgotten. Jesus says from the very beginning, what I'm doing is for everybody. That's the second thing Luke wants you to know about Jesus by putting this story first. Second thing he wants you to know is that what Jesus is doing, he's doing for everyone. And we don't get to write anybody off or despise anybody or, or want ill for anyone. But the first thing he's trying to teach us is what is Jesus? Well, this thing that Jesus is doing for everyone, what is that thing? That's the first thing we're supposed to learn from this text. So, so we're going to jump back and, and read a little bit of it again. We're going to start in verse 17, read a little bit more. And as we do, I, I, want you to, I want you to be very gentle with yourself, but I want you to notice something. Uh, just notice if there's any difference between how you would describe what Jesus came to accomplish and how Jesus describes it. That'd be a curious thing to notice, right? Just kind of think in your brain, how would you summarize the, what Jesus came to do? And just notice if it's very different than how Jesus would summarize it. Don't, don't be too hard on yourself, but just... Just notice, back in Luke chapter 4, verse 17, he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he, he unrolled it, and it was a big scroll. So he picked this passage on purpose. He found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant. Everyone in the synagogue was looking at him. And he said, today we are doing this. This is what we're doing today. What Jesus reads there is from Isaiah 61. And he says that. What God promises in Isaiah 61, that is what I am accomplishing. Now, to fully understand what Jesus is saying, we've got to know Isaiah 61. Because everybody in that room knew Isaiah 61. Now, now we can't know. Luke could be summarizing. Jesus might have read the whole passage. Or maybe he just read the beginning. But either way, everybody in the room knew the whole thing. And, and I don't, so you probably do, but I don't. So bear with me while I catch myself up on the rest of Isaiah 61. If you want to turn to it in your Bibles, you can, or I'll just read it to you. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord, sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion. Oh, listen to this next part. This is so beautiful. To give a crown of beauty instead of ashes, joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. 
Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They'll renew the cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. You'll be called priests of the Lord. That is those who connect people back to God. You'll be ministers of God. That's those who serve God. You'll feed on the wealth of nations. In their riches you will boast. And remember, Jesus says this promise isn't just for some small group of people. This promise is for for everybody, right? We've already established who it's for. It's for everybody. Instead of shame, you'll receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, disgrace, you'll rejoice in your inheritance. You'll inherit a double portion in your land. Everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I'll reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will know they're the people that the Lord blessed. And then he gets so personal. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up from a garden and a garden causes a seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. Jesus goes to this great, big promise of God. And he says, that is what I'm doing. I'm doing that right now. And they're surprised. Their surprise is who's doing it. They're like, wait a second. Aren't you like Joseph's boy? Like, didn't you, aren't you the little kid, the little rug rat who was running around the carpentry shop when I took my wagon wheel to get fixed? Or, or the little kid who toted along with his toy hammer when your, your dad came over and fixed the door and put it back on its hinges? Like, well, like, you? You're the one who's going to accomplish this great promise that we memorized as children? That's their surprise. Their surprise is who is going to accomplish this great big promise? But I think with us, our surprise, if you could let yourself be surprised just a little bit today, I think our surprise is a little different. We've kind of got it, we kind of got it in our heads. Oh, right, Jesus is the one accomplishing the purposes of God. We, a lot of, we kind of, we're, you know, even if you're not a Christian, you kind of know that's the Christian claim, is that Jesus is the guy who, who does the stuff. You know, you kind of, you heard that before. Our surprise is the thing he says he's going to do. It's just so big what he says he's going to accomplish. Remember how I asked you to just kind of just be gentle, but be honest about how you would describe what it was that Jesus came to accomplish. And what I've noticed in my own heart and in many people I've talked to is that when we describe it, we say things that are true. They're just smaller than the way Jesus puts it. We say true things, wonderful things, like Jesus came to save the lost. Oh, and that's so true, and Jesus promises that, and that's so wonderful, you know. We say this, Jesus came to forgive 
sinners. And as a sinner myself, I am so glad that that's true. I would have no hope if that wasn't true. But, but doesn't that sound just a little bit smaller than Isaiah 61? I mean, Isaiah 61 included that, right? He'll, he'll take away your shame and give you a garment of righteousness. That's about grace and forgiveness. It's not that it wasn't in Isaiah 61. It's just that it was smaller than Isaiah 61. We, we say things like this. We say, Jesus came so that we might have eternal life and no longer fear death. And boy, that's true. I just got back from a, drove back from a family funeral late last night. In fact, actually, my kids drove back so that I could work on this sermon. It was awesome. Um, and, uh, and, we, and so I was really glad yesterday that part of what Jesus came to do is to g- promise us eternal life. Um, but but and that's, doesn't that feel just a little smaller than what Isaiah 61 says? Here's the thing. Even when God's word is trying to as efficiently as possible summarize what Jesus came to do. Like there's like, okay, we've got to use as few words as possible. We see an example of this in the same chapter of of Luke. If you're still in Luke chapter four, look down to verse 42. The people were looking for Jesus when they came to where he was. They tried to keep him from leaving them. And he said, this is as short as Luke can make it. I just want you to kind of gently notice how different this is than the way we might put it. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching this in the synagogues of Judea. And this isn't rare. It's not like I found the one weird text. This is the standard way that the Bible summarizes the teaching and purpose of the ministry of Jesus to declare and accomplish the kingdom of God. It's the most common way that the Gospels summarize the work of Jesus. And yet, again, if we'll just gently notice, my guess is it isn't the most common way you would summarize it. And I know it isn't the most common way I summarize it. And that's a curious thing, isn't it? That there's this consistent pattern in the text of how the text summarizes the work of Jesus and how lots of us don't have that as our habit. And, and I want to just think for a second today about first, why? Why do we typically summarize it differently? What, why are things different? And secondly, I just want to think about what difference does it make? Does it even matter? And how might we be helped if we let some of this biblical language You know, Luke picked this text as the first text to tell us about Jesus. And every scholar of Luke agrees that Luke 4, the the, the preaching in Nazareth, is the defining text for understanding the whole gospel of Luke and the whole ministry of Jesus. So why? Why the difference? Well, we've got to do a little church history. Because here's why I think we do it differently. It's because... All of us, our theological mind, our way of thinking about Jesus has been developed in the middle of a fight. A fight that never needed to happen. A fight that you did not start. And a fight that most of you haven't even participated in. In fact, most of you didn't even know the fight was going on. If you grew up in the church, the way you think about Jesus has been affected by this fight. If you didn't grow up in the church, 
and you just heard about Jesus from other Christians or from the radio or from the news or whatever, the way you think about Jesus has been affected by this fight. This fight dates back hundreds, thousands of years. You didn't start it. And it's so sad because it never even needed to happen. It's like when people fight about French toast versus waffles. And you just want to tell them, you could have both. Like there is no law against eating French toast and waffles. In fact, if I might just say, you can actually make French toast, cook it in a waffle maker. It will be one of the best days of your whole life. Some of you are about to be transformed, not by the word of God today, but by the breakfast advice that I gave you. I will hear from some of you next week, and you're going to be like, I was skeptical about the Jesus stuff, but I trusted you with the French toast waffles, and my life has changed. Okay, that's true. You don't have to fight about French toast versus waffles. You can do both. And this fight is the same way. Now, to talk about this fight is a little hard, but it's been called lots of different things. I'm going to talk about a couple things we've called this fight. Sometimes people call this fight the social gospel versus the salvation gospel. Uh, The social gospel sounds like this. Jesus came to fix human society. And so the good news of Jesus is that there's a better way for us to live together, a way where people don't go hungry and where prisoners don't rot in jails with no one showing them love and, and, and where the court system works appropriately. This is the social gospel. Jesus came to fix the way we relate to one another. The salvation gospel would say, no, no, Jesus came to fix the way we relate to God. And that the the purpose of of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so your sins can be forgiven, you can be made into a new creation, and you can be restored to Jesus. Another way we talk about this is the promise of justice. Jesus promises justice versus the promise of justification. Justification is a fancy word that just means that I am guilty before God. And for me to have a relationship with God, I need to be declared not guilty. And this is accomplished by the cross of Jesus Christ. I am baptized into Christ. I am washed free of my sin. I arise a new creation and I, I, have a, I am justified before God. The promise of justice says that the big problem is that the world is in chaos and the world is full of evil and oppression and it needs to be set right and the oppressed need to be lifted up and rescued and restored and the the hungry need to be fed and those unjustly imprisoned need to be set free. And in the extremes, these two things can sound pretty different. You could find a person who claims to be a Christian who might say something like this. Jesus came to rescue society. Care for the poor, the sick. That's what the church should do. Spiritual salvation doesn't even matter. When you care for people, you could find someone else who would claim to follow Jesus and would say, Jesus came to provide a path to heaven and eternal life. And Jesus has nothing to say about human experience and how we're supposed to treat each other. Those are kind of what the extremes sound like. And here's the thing. Even if you've never heard of this argument before, even if me describing this tension is the first time you've ever heard of it, your way of thinking about Jesus has been affected by this argument because it's going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And most of us subconsciously have sort of picked a side. I know I've picked a side. 
um, uh, kind of subconsciously, which way makes more sense to me. I recently had a very short window of time. Someone asked me, what was Jesus all about? And the first sentence out of my mouth was, Jesus came so that we could be restored in our relationship with God. That was the first sentence I said. I could only say one sentence. I didn't know how long we had to talk. Uh, we, we only had a minute. They were walking. I was walking. Maybe, maybe I only got one sentence. I picked that one as my starting one. Now, I ended up getting, we had a little more time. I ended up getting probably like four minutes. And I ended up getting some sentences that talked about the other side too. But I had to pick. And I, I picked one. And I'm not apologizing for that pick. I only had one sentence. I had to say something first, right? You know? But here's the thing. When I read Luke's gospel, and he said, I'm going to, Ethan, he says, I'm going to give you an organized account. And he put this story first so I could understand the purpose of the ministry of Jesus. Here's what I discover is that I don't have to pick a side in that fight. This is an argument that Jesus did not start. And I can just let myself use Jesus' language to describe Jesus' mission. And what does he say? He says, I am here to establish the kingdom that God promised. He says, you remember the promise of Isaiah 61? I am here to keep it. God made the promise. I'm here to keep the promise. And what will be required to establish this new kingdom? Well, first of all, we'll need a victorious king. Because the old kingdoms are not going away for free. Someone will have to come and achieve victory. We will need a victorious king to have a new kingdom. And praise God, we have one. Jesus accomplished this victory in the most surprising way. He died on the cross and then rose again so that sin and death itself have been defeated and there is no one else to challenge him. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the first thing you need to establish a new kingdom is you need a victorious king. And Jesus says again and again, I am that victorious king. I have come to achieve victory. And then in his resurrection, he does it. The second thing you're going to need, though, if you're going to have a kingdom, is you're going to need citizens. And the problem is, is that all the people who could be citizens, we all fought against the king. We all fought on the wrong side. We are all rebels against the now, once, and future king. So for there to be a kingdom, there will need to be some mechanism by which rebels become citizens. And we can't pay back our debt. We can't unfight against our God. We can't unrebel. The only mechanism for this is the forgiveness of God through the grace of Jesus Christ. The new king is just going to have to say, I forgive you. I pay your debt. You are welcome and invited to be children in my family, to be citizens of my kingdom. For there to be a kingdom, we need a victorious king, and we have one in Jesus Christ. For there to be a kingdom, we need a way for rebels to become citizens, and we have that in Jesus Christ. But for there to be a kingdom, we also need a way that these new citizens now live together. Where when one is hungry, those who aren't feed them. 
And when one is homeless, those who aren't find a place for them to stay. And when one is oppressed, those who aren't find a way to lift them up. We need a new way for the kingdom to relate. And what is this new way? That also is Jesus Christ. He's the new way of life that we are given, the new society in which we are given. And and so this little war we started about whether the main point is how do rebels become citizens, how do individuals get saved, or whether the main point is how do citizens live together in harmony under the lordship of God. This little little battle we we were fighting, Jesus didn't start that battle. Jesus says, if you want to know what I am here to do, go read Isaiah 61. I'm here to do that. And then when he did a short version, he said, tell everybody the kingdom of God is here. And to establish a new kingdom, you need a victorious king. We got it. That's Jesus. To establish a new kingdom, you need a way for rebels to become citizens. We've got it. It's Jesus. And to establish a new kingdom, you need a way for us to live together. And we've got it. That way is Jesus. Maybe it's why I love Love Month, because in Love Month we say we are not going to fight this battle. We're just going to embrace the fullness of the work of the kingdom, which means when we meet someone who's physically hungry, we feed them, and when we meet someone who's spiritually hungry, we feed them. Why would we ever do, what would we ever argue over one or the other when the kingdom of God so clearly includes the fullness of both? We created the tension. And when we, when we try to do one without the other, we always do something smaller than the great big thing Jesus did. Some Christians, we still try. We say, I want to establish justice in the world. I don't care about justification. I don't care about getting people right with God. I just want to fix the world. That always becomes tyranny. It always does. Forcing everybody else to do it your way. You cannot save the way people relate to one another if you don't save how they relate to God. But Sometimes Christians will say, okay, great, I'm just going to focus on getting souls saved. How do people relate to God? I don't care how they relate to each other. We start to sound like the guy the book of James condemns who sees a hungry man while his arms are full of food and says, I'll pray for you, brother, as he walks away with hands full of food while the other man's hungry. Go read Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is so much bigger than that. Luke wants to get us started. He organizes his account so we'll know the answer to two questions right off the bat. Before we read anything else about Jesus, he wants us to know the answer to two questions. Who is the ministry of Jesus for? He says, you'll be surprised. It's for everybody. And what is he trying to accomplish? And Luke says, well, the easiest way to know what Jesus is trying to accomplish is he says, let me tell you about this one time. He went to his hometown and he read Isaiah 61. And then he said, I'm doing that. I'm establishing the kingdom of God. For that, we will need a victorious king to defeat all other enemies. And that's me. For that, we'll need a way for rebels to become citizens. And I am that way. 
And for that, we will then need a way for citizens to live in love with God and with one another. And I'm that way. And the amazing thing is, for a person like me who lives a lot of my life as a rebel against the kingdom of God, I'm always amazed that a rebel like me could be allowed to become a citizen with really no consequences, just, just grace, just grace, just grace. I'm not saying it's been easy to live as a citizen. I still, you know, rebellious habits die hard. The amazing thing, though, is it isn't just that God lets rebels become citizens. God then lets citizens become ambassadors. And we get to enter the world announcing this same super big thing. So don't go with anything smaller than this. Go with something this big. God is going to establish his reign eternally and we'll need a victorious king and we've got it and we'll need a way for rebels to become citizens and we've got it and then we'll need a way to live in harmony and goodness together and we've got it. That's how big the mission of Jesus is and that's the mission that we are a part of. Let me pray for you right now. God, widen my vision. Widen my vision. God, let me see the the promise you made through Isaiah. Let me see how Jesus himself says, I'm here to do it. And then how that's exactly what he did. And keep my vision that big, God. I thank you. For everybody here who knows that they were a rebel and is now a citizen by your grace. I pray for everybody here who is still in rebellion and they're trying to figure out some way to impress your kingdom or some way to earn your kingdom or some way to war against your kingdom. And I just pray that they would know that they will lose that battle and they will not impress you, but there is a way for rebels to become citizens if they would just receive the grace of their merciful king. And as we, as we recognize that we are citizens, God, I just pray that we would know we are ambassadors of this great big mission of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.